0: Have your Bibles turn to Psalm 16. No good apart from you. We're a culture that really is obsessed with superheroes. You just think about uh, how many blockbuster movies are based on these fictitious superheroes. Whether it's Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Batman, Captain America... Captain Marvel, or Superman. Something that all of these superheroes share in common is that they are a source of safety to those ordinary mortals around them. These superheroes protect. They're unselfish. They exist to keep people safe. We don't have to look at the movies, though, to find our real heroes. As a society we should have great admiration for all the real life heroes as well. In fact when someone gives their life as a sacrifice for someone else we will often say of that person he or she died a hero. And we see such heroes every day with our brave military who put their lives on the line every day and our law enforcement as well and our brave first responders. Our psalm today begins with the words, Preserve me, O God. Other translations, protect me, keep me safe. In the heading of your psalm, it should say it's a mictum. I won't get into exactly what that is because scholars aren't very sure what that is. But it is attributed to David, that he is the psalmist. And we are pretty certain that this is David because twice in the book of Acts, this very passage is a reference in both times, Peter, the first time, Paul, the second time, refers to these words as written by David. And the last time I checked, Peter and Paul lived a lot closer to the time of David than I do. So I think they would have a better idea about who wrote this book. The book of Psalms 16, written by David. We find three names of God in the very first two verses He says, preserve me, O God. It's that Hebrew word El. It means the strong one, the mighty one. And it's fitting that David, the warrior king, who often spent much of his life on the run with great danger, would cry out to one greater than any hero on earth, to the strongest one, and the mightiest of one to preserve him and protect him. Now, if you were here last week, I gave you a little taste of what a lament psalm looks like and sounds like, it begins like. And if you remember the lament psalms, there's quite a few of those in the book of Psalms. Those lament psalms begin with a direct address to God and often a prayer. And this psalm begins like a lament psalm, but it's not. A lament psalm. It's in a different category. It's really a a psalm of confidence. A psalm of confidence. Look now, Psalm 16. Let's read from God's Word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's where the title comes from. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. David's prayer begins, Lord, preserve me. Keep me safe. He says of the Lord in verse 1, in you I take refuge. I could have easily titled this sermon, Lord, in you I take refuge. Because I believe we find that he is truly the greatest of all good. That in Him we find our refuge first. We find refuge in the Lord by surrendering to His Lordship and seeing that God is the source of every good thing that we have. I said at the beginning of the sermon that Psalm 16 uses three names of God in the first two verses. Verse 1 uses the name El, God. It means mighty one, strong one. But verse 2, if you look there in your Bibles, you'll see that that verse uses two different names of God. The first should be in your Bibles in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The name that God revealed to Moses there at the burning bush in the book of Exodus. When he asked God, who are you? What is your name? He says, I am that I am. Tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. I am. The covenant name of God for his people Israel. And that's who David speaks to. I say to you, Jehovah God. I say to you, Yahweh, And what does he say? He makes two declarations in verse 2. He says to him, You are my Hebrew Adonai. You are my Lord. And I have no good apart from you. David is unashamed to declare that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is his God. And that this God, the Mighty One, the One who has made covenant promise with the people of Israel, of whom David is the king over the people of Israel, this God, David says, You are my Lord, Adonai, a Hebrew word meaning Master. K. Arthur, in her book, Lord, I Want to Know You, says the lordship of God means his total possession of me and my total submission to him as Lord and Master, that God might possess us and that we might surrender unto him. Just as the choir sang, Lord, I give you all of my days, all of my past, all of my dreams, Lord. I, I su- Adonai I surrender to you as my master. That's David's prayer. That's David's strong, bold declaration. And that's how we find refuge in God by surrendering to his Lordship. But Jesus has something to say about this in his gospel Luke's Gospel chapter 6, 46. He says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now that word is not Adonai, that's in Greek. But why do you call me Lord, Lord? It's a parallel word in the Greek to the Hebrew Adonai. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? According to Jesus and according to God's word, that is a direct contradiction, to say you are my master but I will not do what you are telling me to do. Psalm 84:11 connects God's blessing, God's favor, God's goodness, but notice at the end of this verse, Psalm 84:11, for the Lord God. There's a compound name of God. Is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. We all want good things from God, yet the promise here in Psalm 84 is that God gives those things to those who trust in Him, and those who trust in Him have surrendered to Him, they've put their refuge in Him. They'll walk uprightly and God will not withhold any good thing from them. That phrase in Psalm 16.2, I have no good apart from you. I'm not even going to read the literal rendering from the Hebrew. It's just difficult to translate. It's It's very hard to translate. The ESV does well. Very literal translation. But the NLT, the New Living, really captures this very difficult phrase well when it says in that translation in Psalm sixteen two that every good thing I have comes from you. Everything, Adonai, everything, Lord, everything, Master, everything good that I have, it comes from you. Apart from you, I have no good thing. James 1, 17 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. And when we see God as the very source of all of our good, then we will give God glory for all that He's given us. We will acknowledge Him in all of our ways, and He will direct our paths. So once we come and find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's interesting. One commentator, I was reading... Says that this con- this connection here of the strong one, verse one, L God, and then the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, and then Adonai; these three names of God really parallel well the New Testament view of the Godship of Jesus, that He is said to be Savior, strong, mighty Savior, strong and able to deliver us. That's what the name Jesus means. God who saves. But we also often say we accept Jesus, what? As Savior and Kyrie, Lord. If Jesus truly is our Savior, strong one, mighty to save us from our sins, And if he truly is our master, our Adonai, our Lord, then how can anything else in this world compare to him? How can it compare to the goodness we receive in Jesus and from Jesus? It doesn't. It, as we'll see In these next few verses, the human heart wants to chase after other gods, and we're no different. I've made a revision to point number two. Sometimes when I prepare this message before print time on Friday, I keep studying all weekend. The Lord just says things to me a little clearly, more clearly, and so I want to adjust from the insert. The second point is this, that we find refuge in the Lord by delighting in God's people, God's blessings, and God's presence. Look at verses 3 and 4, Psalm 16. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Here's the contrast. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The names of who, David says? It's the names of the other gods. There, in other cultures there, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there were many gods that were worshipped. And often the worship would involve some kind of sacrifice, blood. And often the blood would be poured out on some sort of altar. David says, I will not participate in any of that. I will not even have their names on my lips. You see, David delights in the excellent ones, the saints in Israel. And when you and I find refuge in God and love him we're going to love having company with those who also love the Lord just like David we should delight in God's people being with God's people in community in fellowship in prayer in worship that we're together delighting in God together thus delighting in one another and just like David we should delight in his in God's people but we should also delight in God's blessings oh there's multiple blessings mentioned in this psalm look at psalm 16:5 the Lord, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, portion there can mean a meal portion. I never forget, a few years ago, it, we got beyond the kids' menu for the fairest children. They were under that magical age of 12, but they are, like, Dad, that, that kids' portion doesn't fill me up. We went beyond the. So going out to eat became a lot more expensive. The day's going to come when the youngest, who's six, will say, Dad, Mom, that portion's too small. So he could be talking about a meal portion, but I think I think here what he's really talking about is a portion of land. And here's what's beautiful. If you go back in the Old Testament, when God. Apportioned when God divided up the land of Israel among the 12 tribes of Israel, you might remember the tribe of Levi, they did not get any land. But God said to them what He said to Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was of the tribe of Levi, the Lord told him, I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the people of Israel. Oh, they may have land, but tribe of Levi, you servants of mine, you who serve in the temple, you have found me, and I have become your portion. Like Aaron and David, as Christians, we can say, listen, David wasn't of the tribe of Levi. But David has such an intimate relationship with God that he could say, as God's anointed king of Israel, you are my chosen portion. All I want is you to fill me. He says, you're my cup. You're my cup. What does that mean for God to be our cup? Man, there were multiple different commentator opinions about what this means but I, here's what I believe in my study this week what it means good old Strong's Concordance it's an easy way for you to, a tool for you to go right back to the original languages of the Bible and see what that word really meant in Hebrew or Greek Strong's Concordance mentions the Hebrew word translated cup can also be used in a figurative manner to speak of a person's destiny This is what Jesus does in that garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. Remember his prayer to God? He says, God, remove this cup from me. See, it was a a cup of suffering. On one other example, he told his disciples who wanted to sit at his right hand and lift, you can't drink the cup. He knew they'd all fall away from him. It was the road. It was the path. It was the the destiny of the Savior to go to the cross. That's why he says, Lord, let this cup pass. So David says, Lord, you are my portion. You're the land that I need. You're the blessing. You are my destiny. You are the very source and direction of my life, my cup. And I don't want that cup to pass, David would pray. No, let it be, you're my cup. But then he talks about you hold my lot. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, casting lots was a way that people sought to know the will of whatever God they worshipped. We do not know what means they used, whether they used different length sticks that they drew from, whether they had some kind of strange die casting system. I guess the closest analogy we have today to that of casting lots is what we do at the beginning often of a football game. We flip a coin, right? We strike it up to chance, fate, probability. But 70 times in the Old Testament and 7 times in the New, they use Lot to seek out that God is sovereign over all things. Therefore, we're going to seek that. I believe that's what that strange combination of the Urim and the Thummim are in the Old Testament. These strange ways to seek out God's guidance, God's counsel. They replaced Judas in Acts 1 by casting Lot. So this is common among the people of God even. He says, Lord, you hold my lot. Lord, you are sovereign over every detail of my life. We even say in English, this person's lot in life, talking about their general life they've lived. But what does David think about his lot in life? Verse 6 tells us, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Lines there refer to boundary lines of property but David is going beyond. You see these blessings are spiritual. Inheritance in Hebrew culture would refer to land being given as well but David's not talking about property. He's not talking about land. He's talking about God's blessing in his life that God is his portion, that God is his cup, that God holds his lot. You see, David has an abundant, rich, full life in God. And this is the life that Jesus promises us. I have come that you might have abundant life, a full, satisfying life in me. But the blessings continue. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. Oh, what a contrast from last week in Psalm 13 where he, he was trying to find counsel within his own heart. And here David is declaring, you counsel me, God. You give me instruction. I'm the king of this nation. I need wisdom, God, yet you counsel me. You're faithful. and Because of that, I want to bless you. I want to worship you. I want to praise your name, Lord. And God says that if we ask for wisdom, in James chapter 1, we ask believing that God will grant us wisdom as well. We need wisdom. And in the night, he says, my heart instructs me. That's simply saying, both in the day and in the night, there is continual instruction that God is giving me. And oh, we have that in the Word and the Holy Spirit in us. But the blessings keep going. Verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David has said, Lord, I am setting you before me. It's, it's very intentional. And like him, we too should acknowledge the Lord's presence always before us. So many times we live our lives in our own strength and our own wisdom. We live as if God is not even present, that our decisions are just our decisions to make. And we we live as functional atheists when we really believe in God and we fail to acknowledge and set Him before us. When, when, When that's the case, then we're easily shaken. But when we set him before us, we find that because God is at our right hand, then we will not be shaken. Oh, to be at the right hand. So significant in Scripture. You see, a fully armed warrior would hold his sword in the right hand and shield in the left. And the very person that soldier That would sit, that would be at the right hand of that soldier. Here David, the warrior king, would go out and fight with Israel. The very person he put right there at his right side would be a shield to him. A defender to him. And that's what God is to us. No matter who's coming against you. God is at your right hand. If you know Jesus Christ and you're setting the Lord before you, you can stand. You will not be shaken. He is at our right hand. What a promise. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 11 because it's just too good. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's people, God's blessings, and God's presence it's so good Jared Wilson writes in his commentary as Yahweh stood always at the psalmist's right hand present to guide and protect so the psalmist is assured of being forever at the right hand of Yahweh to experience the benefits and blessings of his presence so yes we set the Lord before us he is at our right hand defending us fighting the battles for us And we find ourselves in his presence at his right hand. The place where he is pouring out his blessings to us. Eternal pleasure forever. That's why there's no good apart from God. So we find a refuge in the Lord by surrendering to Adonai and seeing God as the source of every good we have. We... Find a refuge also in God's people, God's blessings, and God's presence. And lastly, we find refuge in the Lord by taking confidence in the eternal life God promises to his people. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure also, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David has gladness, absolute joy. He knows God's not going to abandon him. When he would one day die and enter that abode of the dead, that shadowy place, Sheol, he knew that God would be with him. Oh, such powerful words of faith. But what he says in verse 10 is beyond David's own mind. The Holy Spirit of God prophetically putting these words in David's mouth, heart, pen, to be speaking of Jesus, not even knowing who Jesus is. As James Boyce writes, when we die, our bodies do decay. Even if we're waiting for the resurrection, David's body decayed. It did. But the body of Jesus did not decay. God preserved the body of Christ from corruption while he was lying in the tomb and then breathed life back into Jesus. Then on Easter morning, look at Acts 2. Acts 2. This is Peter's sermon on Pentecost Day. The Spirit has come. And he's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, And he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And he goes on to say here, very clearly in Acts, that David was being prophetic. Prophetic. Speaking about the very resurrection of Jesus because Jesus was never abandoned to the grave and neither did his body experience any corruption. No decay. Psalm 73, 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. When God is our refuge, his nearness is our good, his presence is our life. That's why David could say, You make known to me the path of life, because God made known to Jesus the path of eternal life. He made he revealed that the eternal Son of God died on that cross for you and me. And God was never abandoned him. The Father was there with the Son. The Father brought his son back from the dead. No corruption. To live forever as the risen Savior. And because Jesus is alive, we can be alive forevermore through faith in Him. And in His presence, the presence of God, we can experience fullness of joy. The greatest pleasure anyone can ever know. Far greater than any other earthly pleasure. And there's lots of earthly pleasures. But none compare. To being at the right hand of God forevermore. I'll close with this. Donald Wilson writes in his commentary, it is Jesus through his resurrection who takes this path of life into the presence of God. He alone fulfills the promise of triumph over the grave, issuing eternal life. Christ the Lord is preserved by God, given his inheritance, not moved or shaken, secured from death, ushered into the presence of the Father where there is fullness of joy. This hope then becomes our hope in him. We too share in his Easter victory. In him we rest in hope. In him our souls are not abandoned to Sheol. In him we do not see corruption and in him we will know the very presence and pleasures of God.